You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Nicole Yembra, who is the founder and managing director of the Chrysalis Capital, a new $15 million African and dysphoria early stage tech fund, and the Chrysalis Advisors, a strategy and investment advisory firm. Prior, she was CFO of an $80 million PE-backed fintech hold co and managing partner at Greenhouse Capital, the investment arm. On today's episode, you'll learn about What's it like to be a minority female venture capitalist raising a fund to invest in African startups? Does a typical Silicon Valley venture capital fund structure work in Africa? Which countries in Africa have a thriving startup ecosystem? What are some of the difficulties that entrepreneurs in Africa face? And how do African startups expand into new markets? This and much more on today's episode of Silicon Valley. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Nicole, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Thanks for having me. Now, Nicole, could you tell us a little bit about your background up to this point? Yeah, so... um I always joke around that my background is, you know, I've been a problem solver. So how I kind of ended up here, you know, investing in companies and building companies just as a result of my desire to solve problems. So when I graduated from UNC Chapel Hill, I joined Ernst & Young in the risk advisory practice. And our job was basically saying, here's all the issues you have now. Here's where you want to go. And here's how you get there. So studying a lot about people and processes and a little bit of technology. And then I kind of had the spine. I was like, I'm going to live in Brazil. I'm going to live somewhere in Asia. And then I'm going to go on the continent somewhere. And so I did. I lived in Brazil. I lived in Thailand. And then I decided I was going to move to the continent and thought it would be South Africa. Still staying with EY. I was going to keep building, you know, keep working on companies, but doing it back home where my family's from, just in the continent in general. But then I met my former partners and they were saying, okay, we're about to raise money, growing this fintech, come join us. I joined them and became CFO of this fintech company. We went and raised $16.5 million, started growing that out, you know, data to cash and all these different industries. And while we're doing that, we're saying, hmm, there's not a lot of founders that have gotten this milestone in Africa. That's nothing in the US. But in Africa, you know, especially in Nigeria, raising $16.5 million when we did in 2015 was a big deal. And so we set up a little corporate investment arm, if you will, and took some, some money from some H&Is that were like, oh yeah, I want to put some money in companies I don't know what to do. And we deployed that. We created a, an investment vehicle called Greenhouse Capital. We now took that money and put it into 14 different companies. And they have, so it was just about $4 million, but that value now is over 20 million, just three and a half years later. So we put it into companies like Flutterwave and Helium Health and Sure Remit and all these entities that have gone to Y Combinator 500 and have raised crazy amounts of money since then. And so that was kind of the beginning part of this and just really investing in companies that were focused in Africa. So when I was doing research for this episode today, I realized Africa, 54 countries, Mm -hmm. plus or minus two. Mm -hmm. The landmass is bigger than North America, Mm -hmm. Canada, Mexico, everything combined. But most of us kind of lump it all into one category. So what is the kind of the startup ecosystem like in Africa now? And is there areas or countries that are really developing that we should look at? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a common sentiment. People are just like, oh, I love Africa and Africa is cool. And then there's always just these thoughts of what what is supposed to be. Is it all safaris and, and dictators or like what is this continent like? And 
it is 54 different countries that are truly, truly different. Even, you know, Nigeria and Ghana, we argue with each other all the time. <laughs> We're next door neighbors. So when you look at it in terms of where money goes to in this in tech ecosystems, it's really four countries, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, and Egypt. So those four countries combined get almost 80% or just over 80% of all of the funding on the continent period. And so then now you have the other 50 countries <laughs> vying for the remaining balance. And when you look at it, there's reasons why it makes sense, right? South Africa just being a bit more you know, developed in terms of like foreign and European influences in South Africa and that you just kind of like history there, right? And so that's where you look at what SA has done. When you look at Nigeria, obviously is the most populous country on the continent. It's the fifth most populous in the world with 200 million people. And so pretty much think about what you can sell to 200 million people. Like that is a huge market for anything. If you make it in Nigeria, you can kind of make it anywhere. Going into Kenya, it's actually a huge bed for a lot of repatriates, people that think about and like expats, repats to think about, oh, I want to build something in Africa because there's some policies in East Africa that are a bit more friendly. There's an environment that is, is a little bit easier to do business in. And there's also 50 million people in Kenya as well. So again, another huge population to kind of test things out with. And then when you look at Egypt, it's kind of that link to the Middle East. So a lot of North African companies, they build something in Egypt and they have available market across North Africa and going into, into the Middle East. So these are all kinds of the main four markets, but there's been a lot of attention given to Francophone Africa lately. There are Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, these other countries now that are saying, hey, we would like to grow and do a bit more here. How can we take advantage of that and, and use technology to kind of really push us ahead? But it's still definitely not true, like Pan-African in every region ecosystem. It's really still concentrated in four countries. So those four countries, I mean, Nigeria, 200 million people you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. When companies there want to expand, do they, after they expand their home country, do they then have to go to another continent or are they expanding to the other countries in Africa? What does an expansion look like? Yeah, I've seen kind of both cases and I'm a huge fan of expanding beyond the continent because what we're solving for a lot of times are problems that are very similar in other frontier markets. So there's no reason to limit that to the continent. And if you're thinking about, let's say you get investor money and all of those things, you just minimize your risk, right? Like by making sure you expand across multiple regions. So we've seen Nigerian companies that a lot of them go to LATAM. So Brazil is a market and then also, you know, going into like Indonesia and like stuff like that and saying, okay, how can I do things in these other like Asian markets? Not China, but every other every other Asian because the Chinese are the ones coming to us. But you know, all these other Asian markets are like other viable ones to kind of say, okay, how do I test this out and expand in the Middle East as well? But what we've seen as most common in the past was going next to Ghana. Ghana is always the next easiest one. Language is the same. It's literally across the border, very similar kind of backgrounds. And then people want to go to East Africa and go right to Kenya, Uganda, or Rwanda. But a lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa, they don't expand really into South Africa or to North Africa. And South Africans, they definitely go to Europe. So a lot of things that work in South Africa don't really work elsewhere outside of Africa because their infrastructure and their systems are just different versus SSA is sort of similar. So when you're doing that analysis, a lot like South Africa may not be the most viable market. So you may do other countries in SSA and then go to LATAM or like Indonesia, Malaysia. Can you talk more about the infrastructure of these countries? So over... I think the number was like one in four people in the world without access to power is a Nigerian, right? Which is psychotic. 
I think we were, you know, we we're on the call last week. I was like, yeah, my generator is on outside. Like I, I'm literally my own power generator, my own water, like just, you know, my own water company. I'm like my own everything. The infrastructure. So 66% of Sub-Saharan Africa doesn't have access to grid power. Now that means people are saying, yes, I can't just move into an apartment and then turn on and the lights work and I pay my bill. But there's so much opportunity on the other side of that too, right? Like we have the world's like largest surface for solar. And but so you have, well, is this you can go ahead and cultivate that? Like if it's cultivated properly, it could power huge parts of the world, not just the continent. We have huge availability for like for hydro and all kinds of other things, other power sources, renewable energy sources, but it requires a ton of money that has not been invested so far. You know, even just the Nigerian grid infrastructure requires billions of dollars. I think the number is closer to 20 billion, just to even stabilize the current infrastructure before we're talking about like increasing access of that across the continent versus places like Ghana has stable electricity now, but it's tiny. It's a fraction of Nigeria. There's other great countries like Rwanda, et cetera. But again, Rwanda as an entire country is like half of Lagos, which is one city in Nigeria. So you now start looking at those infrastructure challenges. So yeah, so just even just from the basic there, the more naval environment is in East Africa or is in South Africa, hence why those were easier places to kind of start companies and businesses. But why I also said if you make it in Nigeria, which has all these challenges, you would literally be able to dominate elsewhere. Now, can you talk about some more of these challenges that entrepreneurs might face in Nigeria or other parts of Africa? Yeah, so a huge one is, you know, regulation. I'm always on my little campaign or slash crusade against (laughs) the government saying that I actually just need three things from you. I need identification, I need infrastructure, and I need regulation. So from an identification perspective here, we don't think anything of being born and having a social security number that literally is with us through our entire existence. There is no like sole form of national ID across Nigeria and across a lot of different African countries. There have been initiatives to go and like try to identify everybody, but literally like at birth, especially in rural places, no one's giving children IDs. So this 200 million number is our people that are studying it, people that are going around counting, but do we actually know 100%? No, we don't because there is no national form of ID. The closest thing we've been able to see has been like a bank verification number, for example, but that leaves only the 50% of the country that's banked. Again, another assumption based on, based on these numbers, you don't really have viable data. And now going to infrastructure, again, we've talked to power and water and what all of that just means, even roads, talk about access to markets. Our lovely Nigerian government decided it was wise to close the ports, the borders, like for the last couple of weeks saying, oh, people are importing too much foreign food. Well, that's just made prices go up in the country, which is really dumb. And the ports have been backed up for several weeks. You know, I mentioned to you earlier, I was building out my new office, like our chairs and some furniture is stuck at the ports right now. Like we don't even know when we're going to get them out because these are just major issues. Like here you can ship, receive things without blinking. And for Nigerians and a lot of Africans, like our mailing system is who's going to Nigeria on this day, right? And you're sending packages to them and arranging delivery. So infrastructure is a huge, huge thing. Think about as a business person, how do you get your products to market? How do you get your products to other country if you don't have infrastructure that's reliable? And then the, the last one to talk about is regulation. So a lot of our policies are extremely out of date and then others are not made with really sound data. So for take fintech, which has received the largest amount of funding on the continent over the last four years, but the regulation guiding a lot of fintechs is the same regulation that was driving financial institutions. So literally they're saying, oh, you need to hold deposits at the central bank of $10 million. And you're like, I'm a fintech. Like, where did I even get $10 million just to store at the central bank to be able to process? 
but they haven't come up with anything that's separate for just fintechs. So that all of these rules are still super archaic and then you have to work ways around them. So let's say it tells you get a license in Lagos state. Technically that fintech cannot open any offices in any other states. It's digital. So they can have people download their app, all, all 30 states in Nigeria, but they can't have physical offices because it breaks the law. But this doesn't make sense. And so we think about just that, like regulation across our different countries. Great examples. If I want to send money to Kenya, Kenya shilling, I have to change my Naira to dollars and change from dollars to shilling. So these are now things that you're like, how my currency is unstable. Like it doesn't make transfers easy. There's so many opportunities from that, but it's also just a ton of problems when you go to identification, infrastructure, and regulation. How is the government in Nigeria wanting to work with startups or how are things changing to be more, I want to say startup friendly, or is that not happening? In their mind, it's happening. And there's good examples in the rest of Africa, but I don't think that it's happening fast enough or well enough. Good examples would be, you know, Kagame in Rwanda. So he has an entire team that they call, like, it's called, it used to be called Rwanda Online, it's called Irembo. So it's run now by a lady named Faith Keza. She's actually an MIT grad, ex-Googler, and she's super young. Faith is not even up to 30 yet, and she runs the IT company for the government. So they process their visa on arrival. They process, like, everything that is run, like trying to digitize as much using technology for the entire Rwandese government, like Rwandan government. And she runs that. And so they're really big on innovation, working with these companies. How do they make exports easier? How do they actually truly make all of these things better? On the other side, you now have wonderful governments like in Nigeria, where our leaders are all like 80 something years old. And their idea of technology is like, oh, we took this, we wrote on Twitter and like, that's technology. And you're like, that's not really helpful <laughs> to me that you responded to something on Twitter. And when the tech ecosystem people, they'll say, come, let's have a meeting. It's always having a meeting. I guess that's government in general wanting to have a lot of meetings. But then output of that is not something that's super concrete as far as I'm concerned. So, oh, we're going to launch an innovation fund and they'll put like a million dollars. I'm like, what do you want me to do with a million dollars? Give it to one company and then say that you've done all kinds of things. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to solve around climate change and power and this and this and this. And we have $500,000 to do it. Seriously, like it actually doesn't make any sense. You're not actually putting capital behind it. But the, on the other side, which is now just even more dangerous, we've seen policies that are not even startup friendly at all. So for it to, to talk about that, traffic in Nigeria is hideous, right? You can literally be going a mile and be in traffic for three hours. And so <laughs> I know you think it's bad here, but I promise you it's nothing <laughs> compared like Nigeria, like Lagos and Nairobi are just like different, different beasts. And so all of these like ride hailing bikes, like motorcycles came up. So one of them, Maxwell NG, they pioneered it. They're one of my portfolio companies. They went and they like talked to the government and how do they get this thing passed? So they basically were first, they were moving like packages, decided to move people. So literally Uber model, request it, get a motorcycle, go from place to place, weave in and out of traffic, all of those things, made sure it was safe. As they started going and other competitors start coming to the market, and then the government starts being like, hmm, looks like these guys are making money. They now start arresting a bunch of their drivers, start extorting them for all kinds of money. And so now they go from having like, oh, just like a normal license that was maybe like a dollar a month to being like, you have to now pay thousands of dollars for these bikes every month just so we can increase our revenue. I was like, but they're solving the traffic that you fail to solve because you have bad roads and not enough of them. And so now you want to now take money from them. Then they also see all these fintechs making payments and stuff easier. 
they now increase the basically they're trying to like double taxation on it and say, oh, we want these taxes. We want all these other things on online payments. But we literally are finding ways to innovate around things that you did that are archaic. But now you're seeing it as a source of revenue. So rather than you growing your tax base, rather than you spending time to actually bring more people into your tax base and bring more people into the bank population, you're just going to keep honing down on the companies that are already there and trying to do something good and taxing them to bits, which doesn't make sense. With all this pushback, it sounds like our entrepreneurs still want to take the risk and start companies. Entrepreneurs are going to, right? So Africa is just is an extremely entrepreneurial place. I was reading something yesterday actually that Africa is the first continent. It's the only continent where women entrepreneurs like outnumber men, male entrepreneurs. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we don't have really stable institutions where people can say, oh, I'm going to graduate and go work for, we do have Google and stuff like that, but they don't hire enough people that it's like this super viable pipeline or all the big four, like, again, they exist, but their numbers on the continent are so small compared to the number of jobs and the number of things that are, that are needed on the continent. And so a lot of people's avenue is starting their own business. If you look at, at poverty, you know, you have, we have the number, highest number of people living in extreme poverty in a place like Nigeria, for example. And other places across the continent, the, the wage levels are super low. And so side gig or some kind of start a business, the way to really try to help pull your family out. A viable way around that is building for the continent and building for outside of the continent versus just in your own country. If something happens and, you know, it's like, oh, this policy here, OK, maybe you're a bit protected in Ghana at this time. Or if there's an election in Nigeria in 2019, there's an election in Kenya in 2020. OK, so I know I'm good in Kenya for the next two years. And then when this happens, you now plan around election cycles. So that diversification is a way to de-risk that. But absolutely, you're going to start businesses because you cannot walk around any of these cities on the continent and not see viable opportunities. So then is there a startup center or startup hub in Nigeria, such as Silicon Valley? Is there a version there? So the attempted one a couple years ago, it actually was a couple years ago, but I think now like social media and just access to the real valley raised our taste, quote unquote. So there used to be an area called Yaba. And so they used to joke and call it YabaCon. And so a lot of the early stage tech companies, they didn't have a ton of money. So they all were kind of like in these areas. But now in the last four years, we have our companies raising hundreds of billions of dollars from the Valley, from Europe, et cetera. So now they've gone and created these big, gorgeous other places around the island and stuff. So there's not like just one area as much, but I would still say Lagos, if you're looking in Nigeria, Nairobi, if you're looking in Kenya, Joburg, actually Cape Town is doing a lot better from like a tech perspective than, than Johannesburg is, you know. And so there's still just these cities versus like one area of a city anymore. Now, these areas, do they specialize in a certain type of technology mostly? Or is it pretty, pretty diverse? And also, I've heard that in Africa, some technology is actually more advanced than here in the U.S., such as mobile payments, bank versus unbanked to solve that problem. So could you talk about if this is true or is this just something that makes good headlines yeah. in newspapers? I wouldn't say that there is any like specialization in terms of it's just whatever people see that they want to solve for. But what has been and it's just been tied to like our real problems. So whether that's around financial inclusion, that's around energy, that's around education, um, we're seeing a lot of those things. Right. And, and say fintech loosely, that's been like a big driver. Now, I, I definitely agree that technology, there's some things that are more advanced than we have in America. And it's particularly around like financial services. So, for example, I remember I was having lunch with this lady and she was 
like my card had expired. I forgot about it. Like my card expired on February 28th and it was like now March 1st. So I go and I'm like, oh, here's my card. And so they put it in the POS machine. They're like, oh, card expired. And I was like, oh, shoot. And then she was like, oh, do you need cash or should I try? I was like, oh, don't worry about it. Pulled up my phone and I was like, what's your account number for the company? They gave it to me. And then I just sent them the payment to their account. And she was like, wait, how did you? And I was like, yeah, all of our stuff is all interconnected in the interbanking system. So anybody with as long as they have an account number, or it can be a mobile account number, it could be a real account number. I can just transfer these payments, either even USSD via text message. It's like star 737. You put their account number, you can send it via text message. You don't actually have to log in and have internet and have an app and you can make those payments happen. And so she's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And I'm like, yeah, in the US, if I went to a restaurant, I didn't have my card, I didn't have cash. I would be like, um, maybe some now have Venmo, but like not enough places have Venmo where it's standard. But most of these companies, most of these locations have some kind of account. It could be an e-wallet, mobile account, or an actual bank account, and I can interact with it. So I'm guessing that person you're having that meal with was not from the continent. No. Are you seeing a lot more activity from the Valley and overseas countries looking and more interested in Nigeria right now? There's definitely been a lot of interest from people just building technology one side, but definitely a lot of interest in people funding businesses. So I spend a lot of time having a conversation like we're having, like, hey, we're not a monolith, right? Like it's, there's so many different dimensions, but there's so many different opportunities. It's all about how this set of companies are actually solving it. And here's why it's viable. Here's why these 1.2 billion people are a market that you should take seriously on the continent. And hey, you get 18% of them if you look at Nigeria to start. So we've seen funding when I moved four years ago and we raised our money. The African continent had 0.05% of total venture capital funding. And at the end of last year, it was 0.3%. Now it's not a huge number, but it's like, it's a huge growth number, right? Year on year going from Literally, it's still less than 1% of the, of the global VC funding, but it's a huge growth number. I mean, we've seen a lot of different investors. I think the number, the last one for this year was over 100 and something different investors, some on the continent, but a lot not on the continent that have put money into African companies. And that continues to, some of them is just out of curiosity initially, and then they start realizing, hmm, this is interesting. And everyone is being super pessimistic about the US is going to get another recession again. And this is going to happen. So how do I diversify? How do I start thinking and looking at all these viable opportunities? And there's just some things that good or bad can happen on the continent that can happen elsewhere. So an example is like micro lending. Here, it's been so long since I've gotten any kind of interest or credit card or anything here. But like in America, you know, maybe you, have, you get like a personal loan and it's like 8% or something or 10% for the year or something like that. In Nigeria, you can do a micro loan and it's 25% in a month. So there's people that are, huh, if I give my money to this company, I can make 25, 30% per year on returns. Yeah, I'll go ahead and put money behind some of these entities. And so there's an opportunity for huge, huge returns if you're a very commercial person. But then the other side of it is by putting that money, you're still actually, you're impacting a large base of people. So it's a perfect combination of high impact and commercial returns. Now, these investments, is it easily transferable? Can you get money in and out of the country easily? And yeah, I guess that's my first concern with that. It's actually pretty easy. So in a place like Nigeria, some other countries have different rules around it, but it's actually pretty easy to wire money in. Now, if you want to, somewhere like Nigeria has a bit of difficulty sometimes, not in the last couple of years, but getting dollars back out. So what you would do would be like file a certificate of capital importation. So you bring the money in. So that way, when you're ready to take that investment plus your returns out, the central bank would guarantee giving you 
the dollars back. Other countries have no difficulty in their banks in terms of having dollars to be able to give you your money and your returns back. But it's as simple as wires anywhere else. You can get the money in the account the same day if you wanted. And could you talk a little bit more about your venture capitalist fund? And a fund in Nigeria, is it the same structure as overseas or do things have to be modified a bit? I and most others, we don't use local vehicles for a million and one different reasons. Part of that is I'm trying to give like the companies I invest in, I want them to have global appeal. Global appeal, therefore, most likely means like a Delaware parent company. So we've also done Mauritius, like my former fintech was a Mauritius holding company. Talk a little bit more about those terms that you used. Sure. Uh, so for a lot of the companies, I think this may be just commonplace, but we don't want to, you wouldn't put money into the specific like Nigerian entity. So using a Delaware holding company, register a US company and have the headquarters in Delaware. And that now makes it easier for investors, US, Europe to be able to put money into those companies. Or another viable region on the continent is Mauritius. So my fintech that I was CFO of, we had our parent company in Mauritius because our investors were primarily African anyway. So it made sense to use Mauritius with tax laws and things that were easier for transparency and reporting for them. So in terms of running the fund that is primarily investing in companies on the continent, it doesn't really matter because their parent is most likely going to be in the U.S. And also just just to make it easier to raise money overall and also just reporting and transparency and all of that great stuff that investors love. And then the harvesting period when you get try to get your money back from the companies, is that pretty similar to the U.S., five, seven, ten years? Or is that another adventure? My personal thought and a lot of people are actually on board like in the same thing is that the traditional 10 and 2 doesn't really work for the continent however if you want to be able to raise foreign money as a gp you end up kind of being stuck you know doing this 10 and 2 when we created our investment arm we actually did a evergreen fund because for example when we exited flutterwave we did it within 2 years but there are some other companies that we know we're going to have to hold for much longer because just the nature of the company they're raising in like later stages or they may want M&A and looking for the right person. It may take a little bit longer. And I think a lot of the research that even like IFC, CDC, that they've been doing lately has been showing that some of these SME funds, they're the best time for them is like in year 15 or 13, 14, 15. But yet you're kind of rushing to kind of get out a little bit earlier. So in general, yes, it is the same time and structure, but ideally would be to have a bit more time in something that's more traditional. But that's the other side why I like technology, because with technology, you can actually get out typically in these shorter timeframes that kind of meet that 10 and 2 timeframe. So what are exits? What do those kind of look like for companies there? They don't have access to the capital markets, do they? I mean, they don't go IPO. They do, actually. Oh. Please tell. (laughs) So we actually had our first tech company IPO on the U.S. stock exchange called Jumia. That happened earlier this year. And then we have one company that's going to IPO early next year called InterSwitch. They're the OG fintech of Nigeria. So Visa just did a pre-IPO investment of $200 million. Basically, they're going to choose a London stock exchange instead of the U.S. stock exchange. And there's a couple others that are rumored to kind of be heading that way. There's 40 different exchanges all over the world. So we've seen some African companies, German Stock Exchange or the Australian Exchange as ways to kind of get capital and continue to expand and grow. And so that's like one thing that's viable. But as you know, you know, 97% of exits are M&A. 
So you see a lot of that happening. And that activity has increased significantly on the continent. So between 2017 and 2018, it went up two and a half X in terms of the number of MA activities happening by both African to African players or also international to African players happening. So we're seeing MA activity kind of increase. And so as a as an early stage investor, the way I got my money out from Flutterwave was with the secondary sale. So when they were now raising the next round, we said, okay, we would like to exit structure that out, took a slight discount, and then we were able to get our cash out for our investors and they able to move on that way. So there's a bunch of different creative ways to structure exits for companies. And then right now, what are the obstacles to get more VC funding into these countries? I think a lot of it is just understanding. So when you start having conversations about what the opportunities are and why these are the right founders to back and support, I think it's just it's just understanding. So a favorite example that I use, and it's not out of anything to them, it's just the nature of where money is. Conversation between Zipline and LifeBank. So both of them use drones to deliver blood across different African countries. Like Zipline does it primarily in Rwanda, Ghana, LifeBank is in Nigeria, Ghana, again, using drones, using all kinds of things to deliver blood. But Zipline has raised over 200 million in funding. They're valued at 1.3 billion. They proudly on their website are a Silicon Valley company that's saving Africa. I'm sure they didn't say saving Africa, but they said something to that extent versus like LifeBank. She's been she barely has raised over a million until now. She just won the Jack Ma African Entrepreneur of the Year Award. So now she's getting like all of these press for like, oh, my God, your work is amazing. And she's like, yeah, why would the person from the Valley say it's the same thing? But they know them. They understand them. It's they look like them. They understand their same their conversations, et cetera. They have access. They understand it. It's the same market. Same continent, same same process, but it's just different founders. So I think as more people get to meet more African founders, which is why I'm a fan of like YC and the 500s, I'm a fan of these trips when people are trying to come and understand what's going on in the continent. I think it reduces those barriers and then it would make the African founders solving those problems on ground be able to raise more money. So what's it like being a minority female venture capitalist raising a fund to invest in African startups? It is almost impossible. <laughs> it's already, it's already, it would already be difficult to be a black woman in America raising a fund for American companies. And then I now add the complexity of investing on the continent. I think conversations have been really interesting. It's either your, your fund is too small. And then I explain, well, I, with 4 million, I literally have a return that's actually it's more than 20 million now because two other companies are about to announce rounds that are over 100 million plus. So like by the time I take my stakeholding in that, it's going to be even more. So I'm like, I get it. It's tiny to you, but there's literally nowhere to put this money. We don't have the companies that are rate like the largest one I just told you about was Visa giving 200 million to Interswitch right before they're about to IPO. And that is the first one. And then you have Jamia that was like in that position the year before. I was like, if I raise a hundred million dollar fund, two hundred million, where am I going to put the money? <laughs> right? Like, what's going right? to happen? And so, having to explain to them that the ecosystem is just not there yet. So, the way that I will make sure you get your returns and get four or five x your money is by going to even if it's five hundred thousand, a million dollars, and a company. That trade off for them, where they're just saying, "I'd rather just write large tickets and move on." That's one thing. The second side is also that this education of having to talk about these opportunities and why they are successful and why, even though they may not fully understand or fully like have context around everything, this will be the future of the continent. If you talk about the world's arable land in terms of being able to, to make food, Africa has over half of the world land that can be converted for agriculture. I told you already had the largest surface 
area for renewable energy. The way the world is going, look at our climate stuff. Like you're literally going to be reliant on the continent. We have the world's youngest population. A median age is 18.6. Whereas you have the rest of the world is going to be aging. Who's going to do the labor? Who's going to be the people growing and doing all stuff for the rest of the world? It's going to be in Africa. So having to explain that if you don't invest now, you're not going to be part of that wave in the future. But the people that get it, good or bad, are the Chinese. They have invested in almost every single country, even in parts that people are like, what? Why would they put money there? But they're literally investing for the future. How can the rest of the world and like countries that we think are more friendly a bit to like, you know, take their capital and build something? But the Chinese are coming in and dropping a lot of money. So when you're in the meetings with these LPs trying to get their money for your fund, what's your investment thesis that you're pushing towards? Yeah, so my thesis is centered around global companies, but we just just happen to have African founders. We're not building technology that's only good for Nigeria or Lagos. We're building things that we think are competitive globally. And there's also just part of like changing that narrative that's like, oh, the rest of the world and then Africa is on this side. No, Africa is part of this interconnected world. Just look at these other founders, right? And what they can do that's viable. It's also said, in fact, the continent is still super far behind. And the only way we're going to be able to catch up is with technology. You look at power, they're not going to go and drill all of these lines, create and connect everyone to this grid. You're better off just creating standalone renewable energy, like solar plants, and then powering houses that way, or creating, putting power solar on every house, or creating hydro and doing it that way. You're not going to be able to, to build enough schools. It literally shows this, the data is showing that we need to build three new schools every day to be able to keep up with the demand we'll need by 2040. They're not building three, three new universities every single day. And so then you talk about e-learning and how you now use mobile technology, which is super spread out everywhere, to be able to catch up and be able to educate people and solve the problems around that. So technology is really the only way that we're going to be able to kind of move forward. If you look at our election system, voting is, you know, on these like paper things, which wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't just like a plastic box and the ballots get stolen, right? Like how do you now use technology to like make all of that better, have free and fair elections? There's so many things technology can do. And if you care about having some sort of impact, even if it's just on people's lives, that their life is marginally better, there's no place that your, your dollar will go further than on the continent. Can you talk about some of your portfolio companies and maybe the problems that they're solving? Yeah. So a, a fave, which is they're a favorite, but they're so interesting to have this conversation. It's about Helium Health. Part of the reason I'm actually here in the States now, we were at the Forbes Healthcare Forum earlier this week with basically, I mean, everyone that is anything in global healthcare, Ken Frazier, who's the CEO of Merck and the founders of Epic and all these other multi-billion dollar U.S. conglomerates for healthcare. And there's literally Helium Health that is, you know, digitizing health records for patients on the continent. So Helium's entire proposition is that without data, you don't know what problems you're trying to solve. So people go and be like, oh yeah, there's AIDS and there's, I heard there's malaria, there's this, but there's no real data on what that is. For example, like the Gates Foundation gave Nigeria, it was kind of a three-part grant to eradicate polio, which basically you should really not have in 2019, but that's a different case in and of itself. But the Japanese government had lent money to Nigeria, about 70 something million dollars to work on eradicating polio. And then if they hit it by that target, then the Gates Foundation would actually pay off the debt. And that's what happened. So they ended up counting that as a win. But did we really track that information properly? Did we really, or we really sure? I don't trust any of it. So an example is one of the Helium co-founders 
she used to work at the Lagos State AIDS Control Agency. And she would say that they're taking like intake forms and trying to write people's information. And then they'll go from one system to like this register. And then they would enter the data into the different donor agency systems. And when they're now had to go in and try to review it, sometimes like male would change to female, positive would change to negative, like all kinds. So she was like, I do not trust any of these results. None of this stuff is accurate. No one really knows where this medicine is going, where, where money is going, where all of these things. And so they realized data was really central, but there was no way to get the data. I mean, it's paper systems. So they had to first build the technology, which is electronic medical records and hospital management system to even start collecting the data. So now three years later, they can now use that data they've been collecting from all of these hospitals to now start creating products that are things that are viable to continue to solve healthcare problems. There's now data, they've influenced legislation. There's nothing around healthcare privacy and data privacy. Because of them, they've been able to actually sit down with governors and stuff to talk about what that looks like. They're able to influence state policies on what facility they need to update, what treatments are needed, what medication is needed in these different places because they're seeing data from these locations. So it's been like really cool seeing how their technology is actually transforming people's lives, but it's still a, you know, a viable business. And then if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your fund, what you're doing, what's the best way to go about doing that? Our website is thechrysaliscapital.com. So T-H-E-C-H-R-Y-S-A-L-I-S capital.com. You can find all of our information there. But from us, you can connect to our different portfolio companies. You can learn a lot more about our work, find out all of our social media fun stuff. But kind of talk to y'all about more like I love talking about my continent. I love talking about my country and especially how technology can really transform that. So reach out. Nicole, I want to thank you for your time today. And I also want to thank Nigel Selena, who made the introduction to Nicole that allowed this interview to happen. I'll have his contact information as well in the show notes, as well as Nicole. So if anyone wants to get a hold of anyone, just visit our website. And don't forget to leave us a great review on iTunes if you like the episode. And please share it with all your contacts to spread this information to help everyone out there. So once again, Nicole, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.